Our featured BBBgive.org accredited charity seal holders for this edition are Kaboom, Mercy Ships, National Urban League. To find out more about these and other BBBgive.org accredited charity seal holders, go to give.org. We were so pleased recently to find out that we have been rated number one among all nonprofit themed podcasts on Apple Podcasts. It's a great accomplishment for us. And we want to thank all of you who listen to the podcast and subscribe. And also to all of our guests and sponsors who made that happen. We want to stay number one. So continue to share this podcast with your friends and family and colleagues. And I'm sure they will find what you discovered is that there's great content from amazing people who are sharing their philanthropic stories with you in hopes of inspiring you to do likewise. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor, your host. This is part one of a two-part episode. Today, we're going to speak with Darren Isom. And Darren is a partner at the Bridgespan Group San Francisco office, having previously worked there as a consultant and manager. Darren is known for building lasting client relationships, developing practical strategies, and promoting community engagement in youth and community programs and philanthropy. In 2014, he founded and led the Memphis Music Initiative. That's a $20 million grant-making and community arts development initiative that supported youth and community music engagement activities for underserved populations in Memphis. He also built relationships with various organizations, developed a diverse board and staff, and created a strong infrastructure for delivering results. Before Bridgespan, Darren worked at Times Square Alliance, and as Vice President of Programs for Groundwork, a startup youth services organization in Brooklyn. Darren holds degrees from Howard University, Institut d'Etudes Politiques de Paris, and Columbia Business School's Institute for Nonprofit Management. He would consider himself an activist for disconnected youth and LGBT communities of color and serves on the boards of several organizations, including the National Guild for Community Arts Education. We're going to talk with Darren about his wide-ranging career over many decades now and learn from him 
how some of us who maybe aren't connected as we could be to the nonprofit sector might find through his story a pathway. Darren, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Hello. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Darren, let's jump into uh, your background a little bit. In the buildup to getting you on the show, we had a chance to talk with you about your early days in the nonprofit sector and how you went from essentially an idea of working in business to then shifting to the nonprofit sector. What was that like? No, 100%. So interestingly enough, I, I joke all the time that I know done nonprofit work fairly intuitively all through high school, through college. Uh, those were my people, like some of my early professional experiences were working with organizations like the Brookings Institute. I interned at Brookings Institute when I was in college. I'd worked for the National Association of Political Scientists at some point in D.C. And my more, more formative years were working with Breakthrough Collaborators, Summerbridge in New Orleans and Miami and in D.C. teaching underserved youth. And so that had always been a world that I appreciated and found some space in. But, you know, I'd gone off to undergrad at Howard uh, and then went to grad school in Paris and, and studied at Sciences Po and did a Fulbright there. And I remember very keenly my dad coming over at some point. Uh, I was close to graduation. And he was very impressed with all that I'd done and pulled me to the side away from my mother. He's like, this is great. Now it's time for you to justify those studies. That was his way of saying it's time for you to get a job and a good one. Right. And so at the time it was finance. That's who, that's who was hiring. Right. It's, you know, at every period there's someone or something. Now it's tech. It was financing. Right. And so I took, I remember actually at the point I was looking at three possible jobs. Uh, one was with UNESCO. One was with Cartier. I was in Paris. And the third was with Sakjan, Société Générale. And so one of their bigger banks. And I landed with the third because it was the most obvious, most lucrative, most, you know, I, yeah, it was, it made the most sense, if you will, mm -hmm. and took that job and, and worked there and enjoyed that experience. I was in Paris. I was in Brussels for a bit. I was actually promoted, left Brussels and came to New York. And I was working and living in New York during September 11. And the big secret amongst my friends is that I was clearly doing well at work. I enjoyed the work. I never knew, quite knew what I was doing, art, which, but you know, I think that's a lot of, <laughs> I, I kept getting promoted. So clearly I was doing it well, whatever it was that I was doing. And September 11th happened. And that's another conversation for another day, which I joke all the time that now, you know, when you live in New York during September 11th, your, your September 11th story is not all that interesting. Everyone has September 11th story. But now as I've left New York, and that's been many years ago, it becomes a lot more interesting over time. I was, funny enough, I was in LA a few weeks back in Soho House working. And this young woman, she must have been about 20 or so, came over and was sitting next to me and we were chatting for a bit. And she asked me how I ended up doing the work that I was doing. And I told this story now. And I mentioned being in New York during September 11th. And Art, she looked over at me like I said I was a conductor on the Underground Railroad. Like, I didn't wow. realize it was <laughs> such, it's, I mean, and you realize she's 20, right? Wow. <laughs> she wasn't even born when September 11th happened, yeah. right? But so September 11th happened, and and all the events of the day, the next day, my boss at the time called, and he asked me to call my clients and let them know their projects would be late. Uh, and I was like, I'm sure they have TVs. They, they know their projects are going to be late. And I thought to myself, if dying at work were inevitable, is it felt at the time, I should probably enjoy what I do for a living. Such a simple <laughs> analysis, right? And so I, some five or six months later, I left, you know, so I'm still generations, you know, you got to say salary, you know, look for a job and, and found a position working with this organization called Groundwork for Youth, which was a startup nonprofit organization at the time. Some really cool folks, actually, the the head of the organization at the time is now uh, uh, the head of uh, Robinhood Foundation in New York. Uh, Rich Fury, cool guy, 
good friend. And but like the time we were three folks, I was VP of programs. We joked and we only had one program. Right. Uh, <laughs> and and the work at the time was everything from, you know, navigating the program development, the grant work as well to knocking on doors and housing projects in East New York to get students to come to your program, right? That was the work of a startup organization. And that's the work that I enjoyed, uh, doing all the things and connecting with different communities. And so I've always enjoyed, from a nonprofit perspective and a work perspective, starting things and helping people wrestle with really, really difficult questions, if you will, reflection points, transitions, all those things, because we're all making it up as we go along. We're just putting our best thoughts at play. And so I've done that work. I've worked for Times Square Alliance, helping launch their art design and public programming work, uh, which is a pretty big initiative now. And then I'd also worked with uh, Blue Ridge Foundation, which is a incubator foundation, which is now part of Robin Hood in, in, in Brooklyn. And at some point I'd done CBS, Columbia Business School. And one of my mentors from that conversation, I was talking with her, is that the work was going really well at at Times Square Alliance, but you go to a point where so you're starting a startup where you're a lot of disparate things you're putting together and all of a sudden you have this, you know, it's a solid strategy and, and things are functioning. Success is functioning. And all of a sudden the emails stop being strategic questions and they become HR questions. That's when you know it's, that's when you know it's success, right? It's not about the work. It's about the people at that point, right? Um, yeah. Which is a very different skill set and level of interest. And so I was talking with her about all the stuff that I was doing and what I was thinking about next. And she said, well, have you ever thought about consulting? And, and I'll, be perfectly transparent now. It's hilarious because she said that. And like, you know, I had friends at every level who'd gone off to consulting. When I was at Howard, folks left Howard and went to BCG. When I was at Sciences Po, people left Sciences Po and went to McKinsey. When I was at CBS, people left CBS and went to Bain. And I was like, oh, oh, that's not my ministry. That's, <laughs> that's consulting. It's not my ministry. That's not what I want to do. And she was like, well, what about nonprofit consulting? And it was fairly new at that time as a field, right? This was like mm-hmm. 2006, 2007. Mm-hmm. British Trump was about five years old or something, right? And so I was like, oh, you know, sure. I, I don't know much about it. And that week, three people mentioned Bridge Band and nonprofit consulting. Wow. called the echoing effect. Or at least people may have mentioned it before. This was, this was the first week I heard it, right? And I looked online and serendipity being serendipity because so much of our lives is serendipitous. Bridge Band was hiring. And they had two offices at the time. I was living in New York. There was no New York office. We have six offices now, <laughs> uh, including New York. But at the time, we only had two offices. They were Boston and San Francisco. And so I've been black my whole life. So Boston clearly was not an option. So I, <laughs> <laughs> so I, just, I was like, oh, I guess I'm moving to California, right? So, you know, it is what it is, right? And so I packed up my boyfriend at the time and my cat. And we moved across the country to California. And the goal was to be on the West Coast for three years and come back to the East Coast. I left New York on really good terms. I love New York. I love, yeah. I still love New York, but I really love New York at the time. And three years, you know, California does what California does. And yeah. 15 years later, here I am in California. I, so, I hear you. Yeah. Well, I want to give Boston a little love, although my son lives in <laughs> Boston. My son lives outside of Boston in Brookline, which yeah. is kind yeah. of part of Boston, really. And, you know, when I come to visit, I don't see too many of us in Brookline. And I always say to him, you know, what's the deal? Are you going to be all right? He said, yeah, you know, I think I'm going to be okay, but I don't think I'll be taking any early morning runs. (laughs) Boston, you know, Boston is one of those interesting cities. And I'll joke with you about it, that I joke that there are a few cities as a black person that you don't necessarily like, but you can appreciate that your white friends love. Yeah. Right? So right. Boston is one of those cities. I, I get why my white friends love Boston. Mm-hmm. I get, I, I'm internationally speaking, I get why my white friends love Madrid. 
right? Yeah. But for me yeah. as a black person, I don't have the same experience there. Yeah. Uh, and it's a brutal city. I mean, I grew up in New Orleans and we vacationed mm-hmm. on the Gulf Coast and the, the Carolinas. And the first time I was ever called the N-word was in Boston Yeah. as an adult. Yeah. Like, I was laughing. Like, I came all the way up here for this, right? right. So, yeah. but yeah, it's a pretty intense city for black Americans. That's for well, sure. you know, for me, I have this recollection. So I'm, I'm old enough to remember the busing challenges from the 1970s, you know, mm-hmm. how they were busing students across town to make sure the schools were integrated. And the images and the Ooh. news reports were just Bo- brutal. Boston I mean, acted up. They acted up. Ooh, yeah. You know? And so it's hard to get that image out of my head. Yeah. Although I, I hope that, um, you know, the place has evolved somewhat. And I cities, cities change. Cities change completely. And I think it's interesting. I was having a conversation with a friend, and this comes up in my podcast all the time, this idea that, you know, we have a very preset perspective on a place based on what we knew about in our first 20 years. That's right. And I throw out the example all the time is that I was home in New Orleans. So, you know, I'm out in California. Mm-hmm. My brother is in Atlanta, yeah. which is its own kind of conversation about Atlanta. <laughs> That's just like Atlanta's a conversation. And then my sister's in Charlotte. My mom's in New Orleans. And my, I lost my dad in 2019. My parents were both in New Orleans. And and so we go home fairly often. There was a break, of course, with COVID. So we were home for my mm-hmm. mom's birthday. And, my, and the city's doing really well. New Orleans is doing really well economically. It's better than it's been a really long time. And my mother's really proud of how well the city's doing and wants us all to come home. And we were home. She said, you know, she was trying to fish for a compliment um, and, you know, my sister and I both love the city, but it feels art. It feels so much whiter than the city that we grew up in. These cities have all changed like DC as well. Like these cities have changed Philly as well. These cities have changed so much. Hmm. And so you have these very interesting images of a place that have changed. And my mom said without skipping a beat, yeah, it now feels like the city I grew up in. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. And I'd never thought about the fact that we grew up. And eighty percent black New Orleans because all the white people had left, mm-hmm. right? It was, uh, but my mom grew up in a fifty fifty percent, you know, fifty black fifty not black, you know, city. And the biggest example of that is that everyone knows the story of the Ninth Ward, like this black neighborhood that was really destroyed during Katrina. Yeah, people also know the story of Ruby Bridges as the first black person to yeah. segregate a school in the city of New Orleans. It was in the Ninth Ward. It was an all white school in what was an all white neighborhood, the Ninth Ward. That's happened within a lifetime. Right, that a city has completely changed, and the neighborhoods have changed. And now, my, for my mom, like the ninth ward is white again. That's wow. that's what she knew, right? So, yeah, yeah. Well, you're right. Things do shift, and we're seeing lots of shifts going on. And I guess from your perch as a consultant, you're helping organizations come to grips with a lot of these shifts that we're dealing with. Yeah. What are some of the big challenges that you're seeing in your consultancy? organizations have to deal with these days? No, great question. And I, 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 we joke all the time in consulting that we don't frame things as, as challenges, but as opportunities. Um, mm-hmm. And even, you know, that's a big, the, the big joke, right? You say, well, the challenge is then you stop yourself and halfway through saying, well, the opportunity here. Uh, and I think that honestly, there are lots of amazing opportunities uh, right now within the space itself. And they're just things for us to be really, really excited about. I think that we're going through a huge generational shift within the work itself, where we have baby boomers that are retiring, stepping down, stepping back. And we have 
and I'll, I'm very intentional here, we have millennials that are stepping into power. I'm a Gen Xer. I'm the generation that's in between. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, we're a small generation. When we were young in our careers, we served at service of ba- baby boomers, and now I feel like we're serving at service of millennials. Mm-hmm. And so there's definitely a baton that's being passed. And as a Gen Xer, it's being passed between the boomers and the millennials. And my job is to make sure it's not dropped. Uh, mm. so it's, uh, well, we, we have no, the, the Gen Xers, for the record, don't we don't want to be here really. We're just here. We're just. We're just here because we have to be, right? Yeah. I joke, but you know, I think there's something to be said about the fact that you know we're really thinking about the world differently uh, from a transition perspective, and so that's something to be appreciated. With that transition comes a lot of the narratives have changed tremendously in the space, and I know that the world. You know, there's so much to be pessimistic about or feel some degree of pessimism within the sector and within outcomes, but I do think that the narrative is a, just. A, a thousand times more positive one, a lot more inclusive one. It's one that favors uh, underserved communities. It's one that really appreciates uh, the skills and the talents that leaders of color bring to the work and the thinking. It's the one that understands the value of inclusive practices. It's the one that centers joy within the work. And so I think there's just a lot of really interesting practices that we're thinking through and actually coming up with some solutions to from a sector perspective. I think more, most importantly within the nonprofit sector, We've shifted from work being, you know, just good nonprofit charitable services and, you know, outcomes for specific communities and more about systems change. How do we think about actually changing the systems that give us the options and opportunities that we have now? And I think systems change work is a lot more difficult. It's a lot more challenging. There's no solid through line from a success perspective. It happens in pits and stops. Mm -hmm. uh, And so you don't have the same sense of completion. But I think that work is a lot more interesting and a lot more substantive when it comes to impact. Well, you mentioned the interesting idea that the the sector is maybe evolving from a place where it was once home to people who really had a heart and a passion for changing society or changing the world or changing a community in some way. And I get a sense that you feel that while that's still there, there's also this now move to making sure that people know what they're doing. People understand how to make systems work to create change. And I want to just point out an example of that in your resume. You attended the Columbia Business School's Institute for Nonprofit Management. And that's in a business school at Columbia, right? So, <laughs> yes, right. No, today, totally. Today, Columbia, and I teach in it, has the Masters of Nonprofit Management program in the School of Professional Studies. So, you can see how we've now recognized the importance of developing programs that aren't necessarily connected to business and that they own their own space and their own sector and their own methods for learning how to get things done. Now, I'm sure there's still overlap, but you get my point. 100%. We recognize this need for professionalizing the sector while keeping the heart of it at the same time. And I know that's not always easy to do. What's your, what's your thought about that? No, I think you're spot on there. I think what's interesting, you know, at the time, you know, you went to business school and tried to 
take as much of that as you could from the business school experience to support a nonprofit, right? And when you mm -hmm. have an actual focus on nonprofit, like you can give me two or three courses that are actually more geared toward what I'm learning, right? It's, it was exciting. Mm -hmm. It was, you can yeah. imagine at the time it was like radical, right? Right. And you're there with a whole bunch of folks who come from the finance world and we're going to the business world and there you were the nonprofit or like, what are you doing? Like, you know, so, mm -hmm. but I do think what's interesting is that I think that we've always had an understanding of their needing to be a specific set of skills that were honed and elevated to drive nonprofits successfully, right? Mm -hmm. I think that we have always understood that. I think that we've not been as good as we are now at being able to pull those things out and actually being able to teach those uh, and pass those on. And so I think that, you know, nonprofit leaders have always been, the good nonprofit leaders have been good for a long time. They've just been doing the work intuitively, Right. Mm -hmm. they, they, and they've been doing it intuitively well. Right. It's like your grandmother, who's the, the, the intuitively good cook. Right. Mm -hmm. She clearly knows how to cook. Right. Now, if you ask her how many spoons of this or how many right. cups of that, you you are out of luck. Right? right. And so it requires someone sitting there and actually unpacking the intuition mm -hmm. uh, and playing it back in a way that it lives on outside of the person and within the organization, because this work is less about the one person doing the work, but more about us building organizations that can be sustainable and endure because success, mm -hmm. particularly for people of color, doesn't come within one lifetime. It, mm -hmm. like, we're the only community that we have, we have our leaders out here, you know, standing on at podiums talking about success three generations from now, right? Mm -hmm. um, the dream about dreams that they had about success that's coming with the grandchildren, right? And so we have to have institutions that can endure to bring about that change, which requires really unpacking the intuition that comes from our genius leaders and, you know, playing it back in a way that, you know, allows people to learn the skills. So I think there's something to be said about our being able to appreciate those skills differently in a way that we didn't before. Mm -hmm. And and I joke all the time as someone who spent you know, in, in business school, spent time in business school. I mean, no offense to my business school folks, right? But those are vocational skills. Those mm -hmm. those are those are things you can pick up on YouTube if you right. pay, you know pay enough time. <laughs> um, but the nonprofit management skills, the, the people portions of the work, the actually understanding the assets of communities, the understanding how I mean, you making a profit in a capitalist country is not hard. The, the country's designed for that, mm -hmm. right? Driving impact uh, for underserved communities in a capitalist society—that's hard work. That takes some thinking, right? And so I think appreciating those skills and, and, and unpacking those and capturing those and, and giving people the toolkits to do that work is really important. And I think that you know, where business school is wonderful is that it gives you a great network of people to work with. And so you know, being able to find your squad within an educational setting to carry out the work moving forward becomes just as important to impact as you know, the skills that you have that you bring with you. Yeah, I, I would certainly agree with everything that you've just said there. Darren, we'll end it here and we'll pick it up with part two where we can discuss activism versus institutions. There's so many more things I want to talk to you about. I want to talk about the black church and faith and its role in addressing social issues as we were growing up, changing demographics today and the challenge of fundraising. And I want to know something that's certainly dear to your heart, uh, music and social change. So we'll get into all of that in the next episode. And I hope all of you listening will, will stick around and hear that. Well, Darren, again, I want to thank you for joining me on the Heart of Giving podcast and for your amazing insight and history lessons that you've given us about the social change that has taken place in the Black neighborhoods over 
decades and now generations. And I want to thank you, too, for the work that you're doing, helping us all better understand the field that we're working in that we value so much. And to all of our listeners, I want to thank you, too, for tuning in. And if this is your first time listening, I hope that we will see you around here again next week. But if you want to support the podcast, you can do so by going to give.org and you can make a donation there. Alternatively, we would just love it if you would subscribe to the show because that helps us build audience. We don't have a huge marketing budget for the podcast, but we were happy to know that we were rated number one among all podcasts with a nonprofit theme, number one on Apple Podcasts. So that's a great accomplishment for us. And the way we do that is by sharing this podcast with our friends and our family and our relatives. So I hope you'll do so as well. Thank you for listening. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.